This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Well, good evening. I do want you to know we will be recording these courses. Uh, so if you are listening in on this one and you decide, you know, next week I'd rather not, uh, you can go off to another class uh, and you could even go back online and look up and see what you missed. Uh, or if you want to get, uh, really, you're only going to have two options. You're going to have this class or you could have Miracles of Jesus. Proprietary reasons, we aren't putting the uh, uh, FPU online because we paid for that and it's, it's going to be uh, as is. Uh, and then Grief Share is next door. Keep in mind that we do have a lot going on with the children that you might hear them a little later. Uh, but that just reminds us that we are a young and vibrant church. All right. And so we'll, we'll, work, we'll work through it. If you have the syllabus before you there, uh, we're going to go through that and kind of see where we're headed for the, for the course. I did have some slides. We'll work on that, maybe get them up next week. Uh, sometimes technology gets the better of us, uh, and, uh, and uh, it just we're not going to have those tonight. But everything you'll, that would have been on the slides, you would see there in front of you in, this, in the course syllabus. Again, I'll have the full notes if that's something you would prefer next week, and then, of course, you can get them digitally. You see, the Bible is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. So in the pages of the Bible, we have all the instruction that pertains to life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1.3. The Bible is completely voracious. It's true, and it's the total authority. It is imperative because of this that we interpret the Word of God correctly. And this takes work, rigorous work. Martin Luther once said, there's three kinds of sweat. There's house sweat, what you do around the house. There's work sweat, what you do at your job. And there's church sweat. And he said, he, Martin Luther said, the greatest of these is church sweat. <laughs> I don't know about you. I enjoy the struggle and the challenge of the Word of God. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm sure you would agree, we, we don't know. We have yet to plumb everything that's in it. But it should be fun. I was just listening to a book by Francis Schaeffer called True Spirituality. And in it, he said, it's fun. It is fun to learn new things and to grow. Now, the chastening, not so fun. But to learn the Word of God is fun. But it takes rigorous work. It is work with reward. So as we rightly divide the Word of Truth, we find the profit of becoming perfected and furnished to all good works. So in this class, Foundations for Biblical Interpretation, and you'll see in the Roman numeral one by it, and I'll explain that in a minute, students are going to learn principles of methods of effective Bible interpretation, including a grammatical, historical, we'll explain those words later, and contextual-based interpretive philosophy that promotes accurate understanding and communication of the text. So that's the description of this course. You've read that. You can read it there. But the purpose, it's intended to be an introduction to biblical interpretation so that the student can grow and seek to apply the scriptures more faithfully in their lives. In short, the purpose of this class is so that you learn to read the Bible well. I'm not going to read through all the objectives there. As you see fit, you can. Uh, but we have 10 objectives that we're going to try to accomplish. But let me hone in on the sequence. 
This is the first of three courses. I don't know when the other two will ever happen. Uh, they may never, uh, but it is the first in three uh, that I have. The first is an introduction to hermeneutics, and that's what we're going to accomplish over the next 12, 13, 12 weeks. The second one is Old Testament hermeneutics, and then, of course, you can see the third course is New Testament hermeneutics. This is simply an introduction to hermeneutics, and you'll find that you can take three of the, all three, you could take one at a time, you could take one and never take the other, and you won't miss anything. They, they stand alone. But they are three different courses, and this is the first in the sequence. And we have two texts for this evening. And the first, of course, the text, if we're going to interpret the Word of God, we must have the Word of God. And so our first text that we'll use is the Bible. Now, so you're aware, the Bible I'll be using is the King James Version. Many of you might use other versions. And I would challenge you that as you use other versions to apply the same principles. Because you'll find that if it is an inferior version, the principles that I believe we'll be teaching will help you to understand why that perhaps, ver that version of the Bible perhaps was more of an interpretation than a literal translation. We'll explain some of that as we go along. But I encourage you to apply it, not to say, hey, all right, see, I told you so, but just to apply this to the Word of God that you have in your hands. The second text we have and that we'll be using is a complete foundations for biblical interpretation. So that's where I got the title of the course. And it's this book right here. Now, lest you be nervous, the course that we will have will only be this part of the book, this, on this side, all right? <laughs> only about a half inch. We're, we're not going through this whole book in this, in this uh, 12 weeks. We're only going to hit about the first 100 pages of this book. You also need to be aware that this is a compilation of, of papers that are written by seminary professors. So if you look at, just scoot in about two or three pages to the first page of notes, and I want to just show something to you there, and then we'll, we'll kick on back to the syllabus. You'll see Revelation, and it says, the act of God making himself known to humans. Do you see that on that first there? If you look under it, you'll see where I, I attribute the content. And of course, this first one is Millard Erickson. He's a research professor of theology, Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And so I want you to be very aware up front that this material is not original to me. All right? Uh, this is out, uh, this comes from this book. I do add things in that I think are appropriate. There's times when I'll, they'll have illustrations that I don't necessarily think are the best. And so I change them. But the, the concept, the flow, the sequence comes from this book. Uh, the, uh, uh, the foundations for biblical interpretation. Uh, I think it's a, an excellent work. It's an excellent book. Um, and I, uh, it was one that I used uh, when I was in seminary. And so uh, we, though, don't get afraid. I, I don't think this is going to be necessarily a 500, 600 level class. Uh, I'm teaching it. So it's around eighth grade, all right? And so uh, uh, you guys will do much better. Uh, and I think uh, you'll, you'll be able to help and, and, and make this course even better. So that's the book. Now we're gonna have three lectures throughout the course, all right? Uh, and uh, I will be the main lecturer. We'll be going through each uh, week, but there are a couple weeks where I uh, will be on travel. And so I have or I've asked and they've graciously accepted. So the first le guest lecturer, he's actually right here, is gonna be Josh Wagar. And I think we decided January 24th, right? 
just a couple days before they uh, they got to get out of here. Uh, but uh, he will be, uh, he's got latitude. I don't want to peg him down too much on what he's going to be teaching on, but I've asked him to kind of consider teaching on biblical interpretation from a cross-cultural context. He is not only studying the Bible in his English language, and he will teach it and preach it in English, I assume, right? But he's also, just because they might speak some rudimentary English in Chuuk, uh, he the, still has to deliver that in their milieu and in their, uh, their context. And so I've asked him to talk about that. And then around February 28th, I think is what we agreed on, uh, and uh, Keon Lindsay is going to talk about biblical interpretation from a layman's perspective. Now, I'm a layman as well, uh, but uh, you'll find, and I gave you the bio for Mr. Lindsay and Josh, Mr. Wagar there, uh, both of them have been to school. Josh is an ordained minister, a missionary to Chuuk, of course, you know that. And then Keon, what you didn't know, and what I learned as I uh, went into LinkedIn and, and, uh, and uh, researched him, not only is he an author, uh, but he has a Bachelor of Science in Aerospace Engineering from the United States Naval Academy. He's very analytical. He thinks analytically. Uh, and then a Master's of Science in Aeronautical Engineering from the Naval Postgraduate School. So uh, I think you'll find his perspective refreshing and very helpful as he helps and talks about uh, interpretation from a layman's perspective. You'll see our course schedule. Uh, I had sent this to you, Keon and, and Josh, and, and I did change it just a little bit. Um, your dates are still the same, but I added up, uh, I took one week to do geography in the Bible and added two weeks to do uh, study interpretation of the Bible. So you'll see dates have kind of shifted there as you prepare your, your, your lectures. So that's the schedule. We will go through March 27th, each Wednesday night. I do know that we have a few Wednesday nights where we'll have business meetings. Uh, and so we might get in here a little later. I will do everything I can to get out of here by 8.15, all right? I know you have children, some of you have children, uh, others you just wanna leave. Uh, and so uh, we will we'll be do our best to just get you out of here on time, which means as we go along, you might find I'll just stop, okay? You'll have the notes, we'll pick them right back up the next week. So this is more, I would say, a guide please don't hold me to the schedule, all right? Uh, but this is, uh, this is the best of intentions. All right, any questions about the syllabus? So let's get into it. Is a class such as hermeneutics, is it necessary? Well, I see you're here, thank you. You say why, or you say yes, tell me why. If you say, eh, I don't know, I'm here because I, I don't believe in miracles and I'm not grieving yet, uh, or, you know, I've, I've got all the money I need, so uh, I don't need FPU. Uh, so why, maybe you're here just to, to explore it. Let me ask you though, is, it, is a class on hermeneutics necessary? And why? Tell me why. And I am able to wait on his timing, which I have found to be one of the most important things in our relationship with him. He is on time, all the time, 
no matter what we think. It's so and I don't understand it, <laughs> but I know it's true, and it helps me. So let's probe that a little. You want to know him better, right? You want to, uh, the more you know him, the more you can wait on him. And how do you get to know him then? The Through the Bible. Maybe it'd help you if we begin by defining that word hermeneutics. You might sit here and say, wait, I did not come to learn big words. <laughs> hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, let me give you a definition. Hermeneutics is the theory and methodology of interpretation, especially the interpretation of biblical texts. It's a, what we call a technical word. In other words, it applies primarily to biblical texts. Yes, there's a little bit of expansion. It's derived from the Greek word hermeneuo, uh, which we then call that a transliterated word. The English didn't change it much. They just took hermeneuo and made it into hermeneutics. All right, so it's a transliterated word. And it comes from uh, the Greek word, which means to translate or interpret. Now, some say the word comes from, maybe you've heard of this, Hermes. Carolyn, who is Hermes? Yes, wow, I didn't, even, I didn't even feed that to her. Um, it's the mythological Greek deity who was the messenger of the gods, or the god of language. But the Greek word hermeneuo means to interpret, to explain in words, to expound or to translate what has been spoken or written in a language. The idea in some contexts is to help someone understand a subject or matter by making it plain. In the present context, the idea we have that in this class, the idea is the rendering of words from a different language into ours to make them more understandable. It's a technical term, like I said. And it was first, if we go back to Greek, uh, because it comes from the Greek, it was first introduced into philosophy mainly through the title of Aristotle's work, which was Peri Hermanas, commonly referred by its Latin title, De Interpretation, or translated into English as On Interpretation. It goes back to 360 BC. It's one of the first philosophical works in the Western tradition to deal with the relationship between language and logic in, comprehensive and, uh, in a comprehensive, explicit, and formal way. Notice I said a couple words there. Language, logic. It's a methodology. It's a process. Now, the word does occur. I don't want to completely look to the Greeks and classical Greek for this. It does occur in our Bible. That word, hermeneuo, occurs four times. But as you look at these words, you might say, and we built an entire discipline on that? For example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They say it unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, master. That's the first use of it, just being interpreted. In John 1, 42, and he brought him unto Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, you remember, being interpreted, or by, which is by interpretation, a stone. So he says his name is Cephas, and it means stone. That's simply what the verse means. In, first, in John 9, 7, and he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. 
And then finally in Hebrews 7.2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. And that's a reference to Melchizedek. So you look at those verses, you say, okay, why do you tell me that? So interpretation occurs in the Bible. We are going to use a very technical definition of it. It is used in the Bible, but I think it's used in a very generic way. And it's not used in the way that we can build this entire discipline. It's not used in the Bible in the technical way that we use it today. So for the purpose of this class, we are going to use that word hermeneutics to mean this. The study of the principles and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. Notice those two words, principles and methods. Why are those two words important? Principles and methods. Why are they important? One thing I've learned is awkward silence is fine. All right? We could just sit here until someone says something. Uh, <laughs> it's okay to talk and, and uh, share your opinion. I'm the only one that has the mic on, so you're not going to be recorded for posterity. Uh, so uh, why, is, why are principles and methods, why are those important? Mrs. Brown. Yes, agreement, proper guidance, uniformity, a standardization. It's not everybody just coming at it as they think it should be. We'll talk more about that. So yes, I think a class like this, hermeneutics, is important. And I'm glad you've cho chosen to join me on this because it's fascinating. I acknowledge as we go along in this class, I'm going to be fascinated and interested in things, and, and you might fall asleep. But we're going to try to keep it exciting. So, but why have a class on how to study and interpret the Bible? We talked about that, but let me ask you this. Let me throw a little wrench into it. Can't we just study the Bible with just the Holy Spirit to guide us? Do we need a course on how to say, why can't we just study? Why can't we just say, I'm going to just give myself over to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to let him lead me. I'm going to let him guide me. I'm going to let him direct me. I don't need anything else other than the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Edify and incur it, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in part, it must be a class like this will help us to ward off any temptation to violate the principle Peter gave in 1 Peter 1.20. Mrs. Brown just mentioned this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. You say, you told us hermeneutics was only used four times. That's a fifth verse. Do you know that's not the same word, hermeneuo? It's not of any private, let me just say it in Greek, hermeneuo. That's not what it says. Even though that word is translated interpretation, it's not the word we see translated elsewhere. Here, Peter, though, this is interesting. This is what makes the Bible fun. 
it's a metaphor he's using. Peter is employing a metaphor using a word that means, here, this, you may not realize that, of no private interpretation, that word interpretation there is translated from the word that means to tie or untie or to loose. You say, that makes no sense. The word of God, the scripture is of no private untying. It's an interesting metaphor. What does Peter mean that the scripture, or more precisely the prophecy of scripture, is not for private loosening? What does that mean? Well, there are a couple things Peter could be getting at. First, the term might refer to that one, the recipients of the prophecies, i.e. that we may not expound prophecy according to our own fancy. We aren't allowed to just untie it any way we want, like a bow on a pack, just open this thing up and say, hey, whatever's in there for me, I'm going to get. It might mean, he might be saying, hey, it's just not... However we choose, or number two, he could mean through the prophets themselves, that the prophets, they didn't have the power of expounding their own prophecies, that the prophecy was not of any private loosening, uh, un unloosening or untying, that they could just come in and just write whatever they want. Or maybe those prophecies themselves, no prophecy comes by its own interpretation. In other words, prophecies don't explain themselves. As we look at prophecy in the Bible, we'll find that we'll be scratching our head. There's many things Peter could have meant, but regardless, he does say in verse 21 that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So if nothing else, the scripture came by God to us for a specific reason at a specific time. It came by the will of God and not by the will of man. So I think it is important that we take the word of God and treat it with utmost reverence that the sacred text deserves so that we might handle it rightly and receive it as it was, as it was intended to be given. If this is the very revelation of God to man, we would do well to see exactly what it is that God wants to reveal to us through it. But just one more thought before we go a little deeper. Let's answer this question. Let's answer the question, do we need a class on hermeneutics? No, you don't need this class. You don't need this class or any class to study the Bible better. What I mean is you can simply rely on the Holy Spirit to enlighten you to the meaning and interpretation of the text. But Imagine what tools that could be employed to you to broaden your frame of reference. So, last week, a couple weeks ago, I don't know, it all blends together. We went on a family vacation. Whoever said family vacation to visiting family was vacation was mistaken. Uh, I love my in-laws. I really do. It's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. You see a lot of family, you, uh, you're sleeping in uh, strange beds, uh, and, uh, but we go on a trip. And when we go on a trip as a family, we go on a trip. We don't pick family that's within two hours. We find the family that's 14 hours of driving time away. That's because that's all they are. They're all that way. And so we get in the car and we drive. You ever go on a road trip? What do you do to prepare for a road trip? You get some gas, right? Snacks, drinks. You might even get some navigation. 
you know. Sometime, remember the days when you could drive with the Rand McNally map across the dashboard and that was your GPS as you followed along? <laughs> you plug it in, you got all these things. You could make a long trip. And you know what? You could do it without some of those things. You don't need the snacks. Carolyn says, yes, Dad, you do. <laughs> you don't need the drinks. You don't need the gas. No, you do need the gas. Uh, but you don't, you don't actually have to have navigation. You could have an idea of where you want to go and maybe one day get there. You don't need all those things. But do some of those things make the trip so much more enjoyable? So much more enlightening? You know, I, I Kendall can attest to this. I don't watch the road as much as I watch the GPS um, and, uh, and look at it and see where we're at. It's fascinating. Is that little, that triangle moving as fast as I am? Uh, <laughs> if I turn like that, will it turn? Uh, <laughs> I, you don't need that. But my goodness, doesn't it make a trip better? as you know where you're at in the world and and uh as you're going along i mean we could blacken out the windows for the kids and say don't look out the windows we could be we could really be 2010 and say no screens uh and uh and uh you can't you can't have any of that and you're just going to enjoy it and count license plates and and uh and and play the alphabet game uh or no games at all we don't even need that we don't need that we will just allow the signs to guide us and we would get there I think we would especially as many times as I've driven to Missouri I could get there but these little things help it and make it more enjoyable and I I don't like this phrase because I know it, some people mean crazy things by it but to enjoy the journey yeah. that's what this class should do I hope give you some tools put them in your tool belt and say Okay, as I open my Bible, I didn't realize that. And now I see that and I can go over here and say, okay. And all of a sudden the Lord is enlightening you to things. Not private interpretation, just knowledge. And here in a very simple way, we all do it. Because I can look at my son Tanner, who is, now let's go younger than that, Titus, who is three, and uh, Titus, who can't read. That's why I wanted to go younger. Tanner might not either. Um, but Titus, he can't read. And let me, let's just say for sake of argument that Titus, he's not accepted Christ, but let's say at some point he accepts Christ before he can read. Can the Holy Spirit guide him? Yeah, he sure can. But I want to teach him to read. Why? Because I want him to have a tool in his tool belt to go into the Bible. And if it's just enough to know letters in the Bible and then put them together to make words in the Bible, isn't it okay to know geography now and build on that and then build on other things and languages and other things that just builds on it so you know it better? So when Titus is in his 30s and in his 40s, he's still learning. He's not arrived. They're tools, just like Titus learning the alphabet is a tool to grow closer to God. So let's get into it. Revelation. Revelation refers to God making himself known to humans. 
This action is necessary because humans, being limited, are unable to know God by their own ability of discovery. Okay, we're going to unpack that. You are unable by your own ability to just discover God. He has to reveal himself to you. Why would God make himself known to us? Why? We're his creation. Any other reasons God might make himself known to us? Why? Why would he do that? There you go. I heard it. To worship him. He loves us and he wants to have fellowship with us. Now, this might not seem immediately true. After all, did down some, uh, did someone can someone discover God simply by studying or observing nature? You ever hear someone say, I don't know why people don't believe there's a God. Look at the world around us. You ever hear someone say that? Is that true? What? Do people come to God by simply observing nature? Josh, I'm sure you've flown across the Pacific a few times. It's vast. Huge. It's immense. Do you ever sit up there in a plane? I assume you went by plane. Right. Okay. Uh, you, you ever sit up there in the plane, look down? Do you get a window seat or do you have to give that up? All right. You're sitting there and you look down, do you realize how small we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my next thought is how small I'd be in that ocean if I, I went down there. So yeah. I mean, yeah, you look at it and you say, wow. But do you come to a knowledge of God that way? Maybe if it was all you had. Okay. God could use it to draw you. If that's all there was. We're going to come to that. We're going to ask that question. But even if they do, even let's just for sake of argument say someone can come to God by observing nature. If they do, God can't be passive even in that. And that's not strictly a human accomplishment. It's not like, oh, yeah, I figured out. There's a God. I looked at that mountain and said, man, there's a God. God had to have placed the nature there. And God had to place in it the truth that nature to be observed for nature to be observed. There's not completely passive. This then is what's called general revelation. General revelation. General revelation is the knowledge of God which He has made known to all persons at all times and in all places or in, in places, not all places, all, in places. All persons at all times. There is this general revelation. It goes throughout all the world. Now, what are the avenues of general revelation? Now, God reveals himself in nature. In nature. Let me just help you as you take notes. If I had the slides, you would see these notes with a little word underlined, and that would be your cue to, hey, that's the word that goes in that blank. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to see that. If I go so fast and you say, hey, I didn't get that, raise your hand, ask, I don't mind going back, and I'll give you the, if those of you that are OCD and need to fill in every blank, all right? I understand, all right? So, God reveals himself in nature. There are abundant references to this in Scripture, especially the Psalms. Consider Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the firmament showeth his handiwork. They declare. In fact, if you read on in that passage, it would say, day unto day uttereth speech. This is audible. You can hear it. They declare, they shout the glory of God. Paul references this revelation in Romans 1. He spoke of the witnesses to God in creation in Romans 1, 19 through 20. This is evidence, according to Paul, of God's power and his deity. The second avenue of general revelation then is, the first is he reveals himself in nature, but the second, God has revealed himself in the general events of history. This is evident by any who are willing to observe it. The remarkable preservation of Israel in the face of concerted opposition over the, over the years shows that God is working in history. He sets up nations and he tears others down. I like the quote attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Though an avowed, a, a, avowed deist, he is claimed to have said at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, you remember the quote, perhaps you'll recall it, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Whether he truly said that or not is up for debate. What is not up for debate is he, God, changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Isaiah 10, 13, For saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. One of his ways of revealing himself generally to the world is through the general events of history. The third avenue of general revelation is God reveals himself in human nature. All have been made in the image of God. Apparently, this was not destroyed by the fall. Since Genesis 9, 6, which happens well after the fall, this is what the Bible says. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So we should have so all have some basis for humans finding evidence of God even within themselves. Each human has a sense that there is such a thing as right and wrong. They may not always know what is right and raw or wrong, but they know that there is a right and wrong. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. This is verse 12 of chapter 2. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, they don't have the written word, they don't have that, what we'll see later, the special revelation, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Look at verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile excusing or else excusing accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now Paul is not saying that we have the entire code. Man does not always do right. This is not a matter of what is. Paul isn't talking about what is. He's talking about what ought to be. 
Many philosophers and theologians have developed this idea of conscience. They've developed it into an argument. And perhaps the most famous is Immanuel Kant. He was an 18th century German philosopher. He said there are two things that impress him. Though he rejected a theoretical knowledge of God, he said that the two things that impressed him were the starry heavens above and the moral law within. So there are three ways God has generally revealed himself through nature, through history, and through human nature. But let's consider the possibility of natural theology. The possibility. And here's the question I pose. Is it even possible to develop a natural theology from the data received through general revelation? In other words, what, let, me, let me define that term. What do we mean by natural theology? What does the word theology mean? The study of God. And to so, so to say, can we develop a natural theology? Can we develop a knowledge of God through nature? Okay, that's the question I'm posing. Is it possible to develop a natural theology from the data we receive through general revelation? In other words, I look around, we're going back to the mountain. Wow, there's a mountain. When I was out in Washington State living there and we would see Mount Rainier, it was beautiful. It was, there was such grandeur. Can I look at that and have a knowledge of God? Is it possible to develop a natural theology from the data received through general education? In other words, do we as Christians have any right for arguing for the existence of God on the basis of observed natural facts? So there's been many throughout history who have endeavored to tackle this. Some theologians would say, yes. And they are those that hold what's called the affirmative position. The affirmative position, which is God's existence can be, existence can be objectively proved rationally to anyone willing and able to examine the evidence. Seems simple enough. Well, the major proponent of this, anybody know who the name of the guy was? Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas was a Catholic priest who was born in Italy a long time ago, 1225. He lived for only about 50 years, 49. He lived until... 1274. And he created a five-fold proof for the existence of God. Now, these proofs were based on sensory experience, and we rely on much of our logic and reasoning today on these proofs. Now, we're not going to go into detail on each proof. Let me just give them to you very quickly. You don't need to write them down. I just want you to know what they are. His five logical arguments were, there's the argument for motion. Things in motion were once at rest, and something has to do something to them to make them move. All right? Very simple. I have a marker here. I no longer have a marker there. Something had to move the marker. All right? The law argument for motion. The argument from efficient cause. Very similar to that. Everything has a cause. Not only did that marker move, I caused it to move. All right? So there has to be a cause. The argument from necessary being. Not only did I move that marker and I caused it, 
I exist. Something has to exist to cause that thing. There's a necessary being and possible being. What do you mean necessary being possible? Man is a possible being. Did you know you're just a possibility with a capital P? All right. You're just possible. What do we mean by possible? Because you can exist or you could not exist. All right. You could die. All right. You're just in the realm of possibility. You could exist or you could not exist. If then there is the possible, then there must be the necessary. And what do I mean by that? A necessary being is a being that must exist and cannot not exist. You say, well, what do you mean? You use too many negatives in that. <laughs> not only do it has to exist, you cannot not. In other words, we can exist and we cannot exist. We can be gone. But there has to be someone who can never be gone. And then he argued from the gradations of goodness. Man has a knowledge of perfection. You know in your mind what perfection is. Kendall has an idea of perfection. When she thinks of perfection, up comes my face. <laughs> and she says, that's not it. <laughs> she has this idea. Of, we have this idea of perfection. And thus, we strive for that idea. And we have developed degrees for it. So if there's these degrees of perfection, and okay, Tavis is over here very unperfect, imperfect I think is the word I want, and then over here is Keon, closer to perfection, because perfection is still over here. He's closer to perfection. If there's this string, then ultimately there's got to be something that's perfect. Because what are we getting towards? And according to Thomas Aquinas, that ultimate perfection is God. And then his fifth one was argument from design. To have a design, you must have a designer. You can't have a design without someone there designing it. So he comes up with these five proofs. But one of his proofs, one of his logical arguments, was that everything must have a cause. Therefore, the earth, or more specifically the universe, must have a cause, a first cause. If you ever have the your, your conversation with your child, you could say, okay, mom, dad, where did I come from? Well, son, you came from me. Where did you come from? Well, I came from my dad. Where did he come from? Well, he came from his dad. And we could go all day until ultimately, guess what we got to get to? Adam. Or we don't have to. Oh, okay. We could go, well, it came from a monkey. Yeah. Where'd the monkey come from? Well, it came from an amphibian. Where'd the amphibian come from? Well, it came from a fish. Where'd the fish come from? Well, it came from an amoeba. Where'd the amoeba come from? It came from a cell. Where'd the cell come from? It came from a speck. Where'd the speck come from? It came from an explosion. Where did the explosion come from? Maybe God did that. <laughs> At some point, you have to get to an uncaused cause. Something caused it. It's much more sensical to say, Adam, where did he come from? He was the son of God. 
No salmon in outer space. <laughs> no sound. Sound. <laughs> I was like, I, t- I thought I was going with those come from a fish. Right. There is no sound in outer space. At least I've not heard anything up there. He, so it has to have a cause. He also argued for design, which says that in order for there to be a design, there must be a designer or God. Those who have followed Aquinas have argued that these arguments are demonstrably valid or provable to any reasonable person who's willing to look at it. Even right now, I explained it to you. I said, look, if you do that, and some of you nod your head, yeah, yeah, there's got to be an uncaused cause. Yeah, there's got to be a designer. Yes, that's all got to be. But if there's an affirmative position that, yes, we can develop a natural theology based on general observable data, then there also must be what? A negative position. All right? As the name implies, it's the exact opposite of affirmative. The biggest advocate for this position was a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. Karl Barth. Barth argued that there can be no valid natural theology and that there is no valid general revelation. In the negative position, God's existence is only knowledge of his grace and mercy. Therefore, if humans can achieve some knowledge of God apart from the revelation in Christ, it would be a human accomplishment and thus contributing to one's own salvation. Bart argued that if it were possible, and it's B-A-R-T-H, if you want to know how to spell Carl with a K, Carl Bart, argued that if it were possible to know God outside the gracious revelation in Christ, there would be no need for Christ. It would, in other words, be a form of salvation by works. Karl Barth was not the only one who argued against the natural theology based on general revelation, but he was the most popular. Others like him argued that natural theology built on general revelation is not purely objective or reasonable. The premises or first truths upon which the arguments rest are not undeniable. Rather, they are assumptions. We are only assuming that we have to have a cause to have a cause. We're making assumptions. Additionally, there is some data in the universe that contradicts each other. What do I mean that? For example, Aquinas' argument for design certainly draws upon features that benefit humans, which then argues for a wise and beneficent creator. He says, hey, you got to argue for a God. Why? Because there's an all-powerful, all-loving God, and we can get there. Well, that's a nice benefit, but aren't there evils in the world? Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. If there's a good God, why would we have those? Or aren't there diseases that cause great human suffering, cancer, heart disease, genetic disorder? And aren't there moral evils, suffering, death, human cruelty? When these are taken into account, it's difficult to believe in the existence of a good God. Now, keep in mind, Karl Barth, he's doing his, his study and his theology on the heels of World War I, and the Holocaust and World War II. You can't perhaps forgive these theologians' skepticism of a healthy, vibrant, natural world that points to God. You could prove, based on this data, the existence of a good God. You could say, okay, maybe there's a good God. Or, though, you could say, okay, there's earthquakes. Let's go through the same thing Thomas Aquinas did. Or let's say cancer. Where did cancer come from? Well, it came from these misformed cells. Why are the cells misformed? What misformed them? What ruined them? Why are we frail? And we could go back and go back until finally we say, well, if there's a God, he's not very good. Or we could even go so far as say, actually, that proves the existence of the devil. 
Because if we're going to go back to prove the righteousness and we see all this evil, maybe we can go and say this is what imperfect looks like. And even if the data proves the existence of God, it does not prove the personal God of Christianity. It doesn't get you there. It just proves the existence of a powerful being. Aquinas was convinced, though, that he was proving the existence of the God of the universe with his proofs. But really what he was proving was the potential existence of a God. In fact, you could even say, Thomas, your arguments, how many did, you, how many did he have? He had five gods. Why, did, why, why does the same one have to be all of them? For example, why does the designer also have to be the mover? Why does the uh, uh, the the God, or why does the uh, cause have to be good? I mean, if he's causing earthquakes, that's not good. Karl Barth was not buying it. He was really proving the potential existence of five different gods, the mover, the designer, the causer, and so on. Who says they had to be the same God, let alone the God of the Bible? So what do you think? Can we build a natural theology, a theology of God, based on what we see in nature? I hope I haven't shattered it for you. As Go ahead. The rocks will cry out. Mm -hmm. I've seen the Facebook post. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's been all over. But you're right, right? They're going to cry out. So here's my question. Well, as it appears, let's go back. I think you're right. And I, I, I don't want, because there's a piece to what you're saying that I think we're making another assumption. Okay? And we'll get there. As it appears, the criticism against natural theology seems valid. On the other hand, Bart and his theological cohort, who rejected wholesale all general revelation, they said you can't even look at it, poses problems. Notwithstanding the Bible's own acknowledgement of general revelation, it says in Psalm 19, what? The heavens declare it. we got to start there, right? So, Carl, you got to step aside for this one on this. Thomas Aquinas, I don't think you're there yet either. All right, because we've got to start with what the Bible says, Psalm 19. But was Aquinas right? Well, as you may have guessed, we can find some middle ground between these two extremes, and this is the mediating position. The mediating position. There is a genuine and valid revelation of God in nature. However, it is not possible to construct a genuine natural theology from this general revelation because the effects of sin and the fall have marred the witness and made that revelation unrecognizable. In the mediating position, because God has left a witness of himself in nature, when we see things happen in the natural world and in history, we are seeing the work of God, even though we may not understand it. We might not even see its goodness. We can't look at cancer and say, that's good. But yet, there's a purpose. We might not understand it. But this is still insufficient. We can look at it, but we, are we just stuck, stuck there? Well, well this, is, this is all we got. We can't understand it. This is insufficient. Though nature does reveal God, sin has marred the witness and humans. Because of the fall, 
We are no longer constituted to recognize God in the creation. The created universe came under a curse. We read that in Genesis chapter 3. Paul says the creation groans and travails as it waits its liberation in Romans chapter 8. Though the fall was the catalyst for this marring, we continue, though, to mar it ourselves today. Take for pollution, for example. Now, I'm no environmentalist, but we have not treated our world well. A severely polluted creation does not clearly show forth God's handiwork. Even our human health has been mistreated. Look at humans around us. Are we a clear representation of the image of God? That's not an effective witness to God's goodness. In addition to these, sin itself has affected our ability to know the truth. Romans 1.21 says that when men knew God, they rejected this knowledge. What was the result? Spiritual blindness, the inability to recognize truth. All right, I had a picture I was going to show you, and actually it was of Mount Rainier. And I was going to show you this picture, but I was going to ask this question first. Anybody here use corrective lenses? I see a couple. Who has contacts? And we can't tell that you got correct. All right. How many of you, if you took those corrective lenses out, took your glasses off, took your contact, you would be blind? <laughs> In other words, we don't want you to drive. You might not get out of the building alive. All right? Just All right. Blurry. What's that? Just blurry. Just blurry. How many of you, you cannot see? You cannot see. So if I were to take a picture, imagine here, Mount Rainier, beautiful mountain, and I put this up here, and I said, look at it, but look at it without your lenses. How many of you would enjoy that picture? Would you? No. You know, you look at it, you say, now, let me ask you this, though. Using your imagination, beautiful picture up here, Mount Rainier, does it change the fact that there's still a beautiful picture there, even if you can't see it? That's creation. You look at it, it looks blurry. You might have to squint. Some of you can maybe see it a little more clearly. Some of you are just seeing a picture. You've never seen the real thing. You're just taking the picture's idea of it. But when we put, this on, put, the, put the corrective lenses on, we put our glasses, our contacts on, John Calvin called this concept the spectacles of faith. When we put on the spectacles of faith, we can clearly see general revelation. In fact, we see clearly what was there all along. Then when a person expo is exposed to special revelation as found in the gospel and responds positively, spiritual perception improves. So it's not Aquinas' five proofs, nor is it, five, is it Barth's rejection. For Aquinas, it was his own reasoning, his own faith that was the authority for determining the existence of God. For Barth, it was his own reasoning, his own faith for rejecting any revelation of God. Both were wrong. The mediating position is the biblical model and fits human experience. But we need to explore some nat more with natural revelation. And when I say we need to explore some issues, when I say issues, I do not mean issues with natural revelation itself, but rather issues with how we use it. And that is what I call these practical issues. Practical issues. So we'll pick up practical issues next week. And that first practical issue is salvation through general revelation. Now, we've said, can we develop a natural theology? Now we're going to take that question a step further. Can you be saved through natural theology? And we'll explore that next week. All right, any questions, any thoughts? Take your notes. You're free to take them. You have the full first uh, 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 lecture on Revelation there. 
Uh, next week, I will have complete syllabus for the entire course, uh, Lord willing, if the computer, or not the, the printer, is working. Uh, we'll have that for you, and uh, we'll make sure you've got everything you need for next week. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.